Have you ever thought about quitting your training program as a doctor, starting a charity to help healthcare workers, and then going on to found a startup which is hoping to use AI to make those repetitive admin tasks that doctors perform all the time much more efficient? Nah, neither have I, but luckily today's guest has done exactly that. And hopefully this is a really interesting discussion about career paths and the pros and cons of training, how is it to start a startup and what transferable skills do we have as doctors that actually equip us really, really well for life outside of medicine, if that's what we choose. And this is not really anything to do with medics money or money in general. It's more to do with your career and just showing you that there is different paths available and you have an amazing skill set as a doctor and I hope that you continue to use that to help people and make them better as a doctor. But if you don't want to, you need to realize that you've got amazing transferable skills and there's some amazing opportunities out there. Don't forget, if you like this podcast, we release a new episode every Tuesday. So hit subscribe and you'll be notified when we do a new episode. And we occasionally do Thursday episodes as well when the on-call rotor is kind to us, but you might have noticed that the on-call rotor has not been kind to us recently. So if you like it, hit subscribe, something a bit different, but we hope that it's useful and it inspires you whatever you decide to do in your own career. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists, and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP, and by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So on today's podcast, it's my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Dominic Pimenta. Hi, Dom. Hi, long time no speak. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. We're just saying, so this isn't your first time on the podcast, but it's been a while because I was just like recapping your story. So you were a cardiology registrar in London during the pandemic. I mean, that's how we met over PE because, mm -hmm. I mean, it seems a, a lifetime ago now, but I remember the first day of the pandemic, I was rooting around in my garage because we had no PE and I came out with my DIY goggles, a mask which I'd used for woodworking occasionally and some kind of apron painting. Mm. And that was all the PPE we had. Mm. My wife was just like, you know, beside herself thinking about me going to work in this. I was like, this doesn't seem right, but we're going to do it anyway. And so eventually he posted on Facebook and eventually we, I mean, I end up making PE with Rolls-Royce, which is mm. a pretty random story. We did a podcast about it, but they, Rolls-Royce were amazing. And we made, I think, sort of 10,000 bits of PPE ourselves. It was pretty wild for me. I was at the factory. In fact, everyone's like, oh, what's it like inside the factory? They wouldn't yeah, let me know. near the factory. Like, uh, I was going to ask you. Yeah, you yeah so I, they would meet me outside because I'd be like at work all day with coronavirus patients and then they'd meet me outside the factory they'd put the prototype on the table step back from the table and then I could approach it was like I was contagious I mean I probably was so it's fair enough but like we got 10,000 and then it just got way too big for us and I was like look we need to go bigger and that's where you stepped in because you were doing something really similar as well but bigger and then we scaled it to 100,000 I think and the thing I wanted to mention is someone said to me the other day oh you must have made a fortune from all that PPE you made <laughs> and if only <laughs> well yeah i think it's really important to say that rolls royce were amazing the partners that we worked with were amazing it was all done 
completely for free, which mm. seems, I mean, I was thinking about this because I was looking at Michelle Moan's yacht the other day, who allegedly, because yeah. she's got amazing lawyers, I can only assume, made a ton of money from PPE. We made absolutely none, but we had a great time in a terrible situation and helped a load of people. But yeah, what's your memories of that PPE? Because you went, okay, I made 10,000, but you went massive. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting isn't it like my what was my first experience of what PPE I think it was when I went to go do the fit testing and I was like oh this is weird like I ended up like having to shave twice because like they were like you haven't shaved I, was like, I shaved at eight and it's like 2 p.m they're like no you've not shaved enough and we forgot all about that after three weeks that was so funny people coming in full beards they're like whatever so the shaving thing at the beginning was the first sort of thing oh PPE is a bit of a hassle isn't it and then I was kind of thinking, oh, what is PPE? Because I, I remember seeing these masks and I was like, oh, these look quite similar to what I wear for DIY and painting. And then I realized that they were what I wear for DIY and painting. And I came home exactly the same as you, right? And I went into the outdoors. And I was like, oh, look, I've got 10 N95s here. And suddenly, the, you know, in two weeks, that became like gold dust. But I think the first point of like, you know, this is going to be an issue was when we just ran out when we were prepping, right? We ran out of the masks that we needed and you, yeah, I kind of, you remember that time, right? Like, it's giving me a bit of chills to try and think back to it now. But, like, everybody was so on edge. I think nobody was sleeping. It was almost like, you know, f from a medic perspective anyway, I don't know what the rest of the country was thinking about. But, like, those couple of weeks, sort of early March, I think there was, like, a collective, you know, held breath, I guess. Like, people going, <gasps> like, this is going to be, you know, a big thing. And obviously it was. And then, and that made me really like, oh, actually, like, we aren't prepared. And I think in many ways, like, the NHS did everything in an, like, in an unbelievable way that I've never seen in any organisation. You know, the NHS is, like, the sixth largest organisation in the world, right? So this, like, huge, crazy time of moving, you know, hospitals around and creating new departments and shifting people around... On the flip side of that was all this like, oh, it's going to be fine. We're ready. We don't need any more PPE. You don't need it. And it was like so obvious that we did, even on day one, day zero, in fact, we needed more. So that got me thinking, oh, you know, what else can I be doing? I became very vocal. And at that time, I had quite a big social media presence, became very vocal, didn't really get very far. But then through that, a lot of people started reaching out to me and then with actual possibilities. And I remember Michelle Dawson, an anaesthetist, was the first person who really opened my eyes to the fact that we could do more. And she just phoned me out of the blue and she's like, yeah, I've got a line on 10 million masks from China and actually a friend of mine's making a vaccine and what else can we do? And I was like, okay, well, if you're just sorting this on your day off, like, I think this is a moment that maybe we all need to just explore what our capabilities are. Ah, and then from that sort of spun into the charity. So we launched that, you know, just after lockdown. It, you know, and it, it sort of really hit a nerve. Everybody wanted to help. Everybody wanted to do something. You know, it was very much like stay at home and do nothing. So there was this really like pent up energy. And that was super soul rewarding, actually, to tap that into. I was working COVID ITU throughout, but that was in many ways great for the PPE issue because I saw like firsthand what worked, firsthand what was missing, firsthand what we needed. And as you say, like we went and did some crazy things. So we ended up buying, I think at the peak, we had about 100 3D printers. We had this crazy like volunteer, what do we call it again? We called it a printing hub in on embankment. Do you know what? So much has happened. I'm actually struggling to remember some of these details. And we had a guy running it who's a 3D printing expert called Dr. Nate Petrie. And he'd been printing surfboards, which literally like, you know, a couple of months before, which was also super cool. And then out of that, we ended up making, yeah, I can't remember now, 50,000, 100,000 PPE visors, which Rolls-Royce cut a lot of the laser for us. And that was amazing. You know where they cut the stuff? 
they cut it on what so they got this high power laser that cuts like high end leather for the back of Rolls Royces and they totally repurposed that and cut all of the visors and then they were like look how are you gonna so the mask was like a visor but also the plastic bit and then our problem at Rolls Royce was they had the ability to cut a lot of stuff with the laser but they didn't have the injection molding and uh, I was like to them, yeah, we're going to 3D print them. And they're like, well, we've calculated you'd need 80 3D printers to do that. And I was like, yeah, it's cool. We got 100. They were like, what? You got 100. And, and I was like, I didn't even have that conversation at all. That's so funny. Like, you know, how did we, but you know, it's, it was one of those moments where there were all these vectors of people just completely free of any obligations other than I'm going to do the most to help, you know? And I suppose you know, to, to take your point about people profiteering, like that was almost to the that is so like the opposite of what most people were feeling. They were like, I'm just going to do everything I can. Like Rolls Royce, you know, I think they, they went out on such a limb to, you know, and as you say, those guys were working just like completely, you know, the, the factory was shut. They opened it just to do this. You know, we had donations of recycled ocean plastic. So Parley for the Oceans donated, I can't remember the figure now, but it was a lot of plastic. It printed like 50,000 visors, 25,000 actually. I don't know if I ever told you this, but they went back to the Dominican Republic to help with their COVID response. They're the same visors and it was made from the plastic that came from their ocean. So that was like a nice close. Yeah. Story. And yeah. So, I mean, we done that. That was amazing. Unlike others, it was all not for profit. No one made a penny. I actually, you know, went to the Rolls-Royce factory loads, just like after shifts and stuff. And Rolls-Royce were amazing. And there's so many other partners that we can't mention. I'm feeling a bit funny talking about it because I kind of erased it from my mind. I had a yeah, two-month-old. And my daughter was two months old at the time. And my other daughter has really bad asthma. So I'd come home from work and I was like, am I contagious? Like, we just mm -hmm. didn't know. Mm -hmm. So I had like, the, I came in like the garage took all my clothes off in my garage and then like got a shower. It was really, yeah. So, so that was cool. And that's something that you did. And I was really impressed by that because, you know, like I did like 10,000, but you went like next level. And then you quit your job on Twitter. Is that right? Have I got that right? <laughs> so it's interesting because like I've thought about this a lot in the retrospect and, you know, so yeah, so the coming thing happened. We built this charity up to, we'd ended up doing like 3.2 million as like, it was a big thing. You know, I ran it as CEO while also working in COVID ITU. You know, and as a feel much like, you know, you give your heart and soul to something and at some point you just crack. And I, in many ways, like I, there were some features, I wouldn't be as, you know, to, as glib to label it as PTSD, but like certainly being in a very high emotional state constantly for months, like this was like five months of this stuff, right? So the time I was in the house, I was like, and I was like, do you know what? Like, if you're so disconnected from what everybody else has experienced, this huge collective effort that not just the NHS made, but the country made, you know, you know, your experience in lockdown, our experience in lockdown, how hard that was. I've got pictures, you know, of my sister-in-law who was like, you know, clinically extremely vulnerable family, just visiting us at the end of the drive and sitting there, you know, like this crazy societal disruption and then it's complete disregard for the impact that would then have, which obviously it did. So then I was like one shift, you know, a hard shift for actually other reasons, not, you know, we just lost patients in ITU. I was just like, I've just sort of just had enough. And because I had 60 whatever thousand followers on Twitter, that became a thing, like that became a news story. And I tried to sort of, you know, and at the time it was pretty contentious, but interestingly, the best advice I got at the time was one of my bosses and he was like, you know, there are wrong decisions and there are right decisions, but actually in reality, there are only decisions. And it, well, I, that was really interesting because I, I still don't really have an answer of like, was that a good move or a bad move for me? In many ways, it was a bad move. In many ways, actually, there's probably no way that, you know, the subject of what we're talking about today, which is my new company and health tech, etc. I would be have done those things. 
And actually, equally, along that path in the last two and a half years in between, which, again, seems like a crazy amount of time, there's been huge ups, huge downs, you, you know, things to change. And I think anyone listening to this podcast who's at the beginning of their career, I keep giving this advice to people all the time now, especially if you're a medic, like, you can have a plan, but equally, it's very unlikely that is the plan that you will follow. And it's actually very unlikely that as events occur, you will be able to predict what the actual good or bad outcomes of those events will actually be. So yeah, so then I gave my notice, as you have to do, just, I didn't just walk out the door. And I worked for another, I think, three and a half months or four months in COVID IT. When I left IT, you know, COVID was over, right? That was, remember that? That was a fun, that was a fun album that we had at back end of 2020. COVID was over. That was a good tune. So I went into, I worked for a, a pharmaceutical research company. I did clinical trial work for about a year and a half. And that was actually really interesting. I worked on some gene editing trials. I got to, you know, explore a lot of different areas. I really liked my gen med background in general, despite being a cardiologist. So I got to, you know, really flex in that direction. That was awesome. I think I was like the second ever person or third ever person to consent a human being for CRISPR. And that was a super interesting experience because, you know, he asked a lot of questions. I had literally no answers. I was like, probably, I don't know, like nobody really knows. And that was all going really well. And then for personal reasons, I had to move and work from home again. And the company were actually really good about that. And they had an academic arm, which was looking at AI, health tech research, digital trials, things like that. I had a sort of a dusty folder of my pre-COVID PhD plan, which never you know, never took off. So I got to explore a lot of those, learn to code, do machine learning, do data science. And I actually started to think, wow, health tech across the board, really, from wearables to the power of artificial intelligence, especially large language models, had really crossed some critical thresholds to not just be useful, but to be super powerful. And we ran a trial of heart failure patients, I think the 300 plus at its peak, where we basically just a very simple intervention linked their scales at home to the cellular mobile network and then we got their weights into a essentially into just an excel spreadsheet every single day and then it was my job to basically curate this as a data set call the ones that looked like they were going into heart failure and then just do some simple corrections over the phone but what we found was even that very light digital intervention for the patients it was nothing other than standing on scales no bluetooth no wi-fi we kept probably around 80 to maybe even 100% of patients from unexpectedly having to go to hospital. And actually, even more interestingly, we observed that they started to, to self-manage much better than they had before because they had this constant feedback. I would just call them and be like, why is your weight gone up two kilos today? What are you doing? And they'd be like, oh, I stood on it with a coat, which sometimes did happen. Thou chestnut, eh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My ankles are swollen and I'm breathless and I ran out of my three days ago because it was stopped. And I was like, oh, okay, well then, you know, that's because of your fluid, you need more fruzamide. And then we started to see people self-manage. So I was like, wow, health tech is really powerful. And I started to think, well, actually, do I want to pivot into that as a career? And in pharma, there are some health tech opportunities, but they tend to be very deep in, you know, corporate, you know, you go and work as clinical informatician or something digital in AstraZeneca or Roche. And that's a super corporate job, which I was beginning to suspect is not really my my ultimate vibe, shall we say. And I got the opportunity to get into an accelerator called Entrepreneur First, which is based, well, actually based in six countries now, but the original one's based in London. And there I met my co-founder, Christopher Tan. He went to UCL, machine learning engineer, was a research partner at DeepMind and Google Brain. And he was building some insane, like next level artificial intelligence. And I was like, okay, wow, if we can start unleashing some of this stuff in healthcare, it could, you know, 
change the game, I guess. And that's been what I've been up to, I guess. Awesome. So much to unpack. I want to, like, one thing that I find a lot is uh, you said you quit a training number, pretty baller move, right? But actually, I like to say you change path, okay? Because I also quit a training number for various reasons, mainly that I wasn't enjoying it. I didn't enjoy the rotational nature of the training. You know, I just wanted to live by the beach and spend time with my wife. <laughs> and South Coast guy, yeah. Yeah, you know, so, but when I quit my training number, people literally thought, like looking at me like I was insane. And uh, retrospectively, it was one of the best moves I ever made. Mm. Ha- what was the reaction? And like, because you kind of hinted to it there, but what was the reaction like when, because, you know, your prestigious training contract in London, cardiology, yeah. Yeah. And, you, I mean... and you quit, like what? <laughs> so I think, you know, and this is one of the things in retrospect I realized is that there's a lot of, a lot of railways and do you know what I mean like when you start as a medical student you get on this railway you might get to maybe shift tracks shift trains is it right is it going to be cardiology is it going to be nephrology you didn't get your radiology number maybe you switch over and do peds I don't know but like there aren't that many times you can get off and like yeah so actually at the time it was contentious people like why would you give up your number you're mad you can be a consultant but even at that point I was like and then what you know, and then what's going to happen, right? So you do have to think of what your life, and you know, as the population of humanity gets a lot older, like a lot of trainees think of consultancy as the end, but it's the beginning. It's the beginning of a 40 year career. So you really have to evaluate, like, is that for you? I think for me, I just wanted to have a walk away. And I was like, my logic was, I've had enough. I don't know what the next move I'll make. But if I don't have a break in some sort of meaningful way, I'm going to make a bad move. But what was fascinating to me, and again, maybe it will open the ears of some people who aren't very happy on the railway, is as a medic, once you you know, you've seen this, because you've gone all over the tracks in terms of, you know, going off road, but once you switch your, let's call it career transport from the train to like an off road jeep, the world is crazy place for opportunity right so I went into the private sector for a bit as pharma I worked in academia for a bit I looked at health tech I've really looked really obviously deeply into what medics do on a lot of elements of the tech side I've worked with people doing all sorts of jobs and actually you know career changes although we don't really maybe comment on it much as a profession they're actually really common like I know loads of people now that have switch trains switch careers I mean I think you get exposed as a junior to the people that never did that but actually you know a third two thirds I don't even know how many people but a lot of people do and it's just not something that we really talk about this idea that you can try a number give it up it seems like it's some sort of a failure but actually as you say best decision and in many ways for me I think to get to the point where I am now which is something that I always wanted to do always wanted to work in unleashing technology and medicine ever since F1, essentially. I never would be here without having made that decision. So, you know, and I think my advice to anybody who is thinking of quitting or moving is just go with, you know, your gut. I saw this really great thing LinkedIn yesterday, right? And it said, the queen. And then underneath it, it said, now tell me the last time you thought about it since she died six months ago. And I was like, yeah, that's actually really true. Like even somebody as super impactful, as well-respected, as internationally recognized as the queen, six months later, you know, she's not on anyone's minds. And it's the same principle. Whatever people think or say to you, it's not a lasting legacy. And actually it doesn't really matter to you as the long-term life. So do what's best for you, do what's best for your family. And that's all that really matters to be honest. And certainly the moves that I made, you know, at the time didn't seem like that, but in retrospect were actually. 
Yeah, yeah. I think as well, for me, in medicine, there's a lot of jam tomorrow. It's like, go to med school, it'd be really hard, but then you'll be a doctor and it'll be amazing. You get to that, you get to be F1, it's like, okay, F1's really hard, but when you become a registrar, you know, and then you're a registrar, it's like, okay, when you're a consultant, it's just like jam tomorrow. And I was just like, there is no jam on this train track, as to use your analogy for me. I'm going to find my own jam. And I found some jam. I still love being a doctor, but I also love doing other things as well. So that's interesting. I want to hear about tortoise because that's where we're heading to. But before that, let's just like brainstorm because there's a lot of people listening to this thinking, okay, I'm interested in getting off my track. Maybe I'm not super happy. Or there's no jam, etc. But what skills do I have? Like I'm just a doctor is what I hear all the time. Okay. And I have personally found so many transferable skills that we have as doctors that go straight into business. So let's just brainstorm that for a bit and then let's get deep into tortoise. I mean, shall I start since I don't want to put you on the spot, although you yeah, can handle oh, it. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I guess like one thing that I've noticed is as doctors, we are analyzing data all day long. Okay. And often in real time under in incredible pressure. Okay. And then one thing that's helped us at Medics Money is we collect a ton of data to work out what works and what doesn't. And instead of analyzing medics money data in resus with a patient life or death, I could sit down, have a coffee and analyze that data. But our data analysis skills, even for a, a not, a, not an expert like me, are invaluable in business. And I think the first time I kind of sort of got into it and I was going through some metrics on our email deliverability, someone who was really good were like, oh my God, where did you learn this? I was like, yeah, where did I learn this? Oh, mm. it could have been like, it's just like medicine, but different data, different outcomes, but same thing. So do not underestimate your ability to analyze data. And instead of analyzing it in the middle of resus or in ITU in real time under incredible pressure, generally I analyze most of my medics money data over a nice cup of coffee. So yeah, I'll go with that one. What you got? I would just take the advice that people who've come into medicine, you forget this, right? I think someone said like, what is this, what is this curious engine that takes these super bright, super capable, very extroverted people and turns them into people that kind of sort of very sort of downtrodden, can't do anything else, stuck in where they are. So just think about where you started from. You started as like one of the most pluripotent, talented people, by definition, within your peer group, you know, you're in your A-levels, you're doing 55 extracurricular activities, you're learning new things all the time, you're smashing your A-levels, you're going to university, right? And you care, right? You've got deep mission, deep purpose. And then think about what medical school was like. So you went in on day one, you know, you literally didn't know, well, I won't say this on the thing, you didn't know where your elbow was, literally, right? You didn't know the anatomy, the biology. After a year, you've done about half of it. After two years, you know, you can name everybody in the body. You've got a great sense of what the biology means. You can't speak to a patient. And after three years, you're like, I can examine any part of the body at any point. So the learning curve that you've demonstrated, and people get trapped into thinking, oh, I've just learned medicine, but it's not. You can learn anything. One of the things that really opened my eyes to this was when I left, I suddenly had this almost infinite learning curve. I went into pharma, had to learn pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics, really enjoyed that process. And I think one of the things that people forget is like when you're at medical school, almost every single day you're inundated with new things to learn. And that tap like almost literally switches off the day that you started as an F1. But that muscle memory is still there. You were really good at it. Otherwise, you never would have got to where you go. Every time you had to do a college exam or whatever else, you picked up the same muscle memory. 
And there's this idea that, you know, you get, again, it's like that, the jam tomorrow thing is really good. Like then, you know, you won't need to learn anymore. You can stop. But it's just not true. Human beings do not work like that, right? There's this great book that I read by Carol Dweck, Growth Mindset, right? And it talks about the success of people who basically have two mindsets of like, I don't know this yet, I think is the best way to summarize. I don't know this yet. I don't know economics yet. I don't know the history of medicine yet. Like, I don't know this skill, but it's acquirable because I'm innately sense. And just think about the plethora of terrible stuff that you've had to deal with as a doctor. And at the same time, you were learning, you were running, you know, takes, you were doing a whole bunch of multi-talented things. And then actually, when you go out into the real world, you're like, almost everything that I've learned is I've done. I've just done it in a, as you say, much higher stakes, much more regulated setting. Whereas actually, I'm just going to sit and have a coffee. I'm going to manage this meeting of five people. It's much easier than telling a family of 10 that their relative has just died. Like, you, you know, you have all these innate skills. But I think what people really like lose, and that's mostly because of the way that, you know, the shift from student to trainee, and the training is very poor in many sense of the word, you forget that you have the ability to continuously learn, but everybody does. And actually every human being does. And that's, I think that's the main, I mean, I've had to learn, even in the just last two years, what have I learned? I've learned accounting, I've learned charity governance, I've learned you know, I could give you a whole lecture on the BSI standards for PPE face masks. I've learned machine learning. I mean, like literally like all these random, completely random things. I read this really interesting thing once about Elon Musk, uh, which is actually more controversial because it's a quite controversial character. But back in the day, people just thought that he was like this guy that was, you know, this polymath. And he actually said that I deliberately go and learn in quite a lot of depth, completely unrelated topics, because it gives you such a tangential view on everything else. And if you take that in the reverse, if you leave medicine, but you've learned all these tangential ideas about ethics, about how you deal with people, about, you know, making very high stakes, very multifaceted decisions very quickly, those skills are super useful. And you think in a way that lots of other people don't. You get to the point much faster. I love talking to medics in business, mostly for that. Like the efficiency of communication that you have to learn to present is actually a skill that you don't realize. Oh my God. I was going to come up to that one. I didn't want to go. I was thinking, so I'd say that the another one that I've got is pitching an idea. Okay. If you can pitch a CTPA to the on-call radiologist for <laughs> chest pain query cause, yeah, then yeah. you can pitch any business idea ever. Okay. It's exactly the same. You just outline why, what the problem is, why you need to do it and why your solution to that problem is the best. Okay. So we love radiologists, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but well, no, because I've been in this accelerator, right? And one of the things I came in was, you know, as if you come in as a domain expert, one of your big risks really, when you go in, go into another domain where you're trying to communicate to an investor or a non-medic is that what you know so deeply in your bones is not known to them at all. So how do you convey that? And I went, you know, we read all these pitch books and whatever. And then I thought, actually, hold on. I've been taught how to do this, like, for 10 years. How do you communicate difficult topics? To be? You check their understanding. You signpost them, you know. You take them through it slowly. You repeat that. These are, you know, basic things. So when I started doing that, I was like, oh, actually, I do know how to communicate these hard things. I just have to use the skills that I've already learned and not try and reinvent the book every time. Yeah, super interesting what you said about working with other medics, because we work with medics, but also non-medics. And when you're working with the medics, the pace is just so fast. And, you know, accountants are not going to call me at nine o'clock in the night and say, I've got a great idea. But the medics that we work with will, 
Is that a good thing or not? I think there's a bit of a toxic work culture in medicine, but when you are working with other medics, in my experience, stuff happens ridiculously quickly because that's just what we're used to. We've, we haven't got the perfect environment. We haven't got the perfect resources, but we're great at getting stuff done. So I hope that inspires some people. There's so many transferable skills. Getting started is the hardest part, but you have got started massively, right, with Tortoise. So tell us about this because, yeah, this is big. Yeah, like, how should we begin? So yeah, I went into this accelerator entrepreneur first thinking, okay, AI, specifically large language models, in fact, have just passed an inflection point where they're actually clinically useful. So I was playing around with OpenAI's models like in June last year and thinking, wow, actually this can do... No, I mean, I wasn't really interested in the diagnostic stuff and I still think that's good, but it's difficult to regulate that because of the nature of AI outputs. But even just the basic stuff, you know, write the letters, sort the tests, translation, that's so powerful. So I came into EF thinking, wow, this would be great to try and find a meaningful way to do this. I started working in one company that was basically, so EF is, sorry, for the people who haven't obviously don't know anything about this, Entrepreneur First is very unusual as an accelerator. It's a talent investor. So what it does is it doesn't invest in companies, it invests in people. And then it encourages you to find your co-founder and found a company within the accelerator. Or more simply, it's like Love Island for tech nerds. <laughs> so and you can imagine what that means, right? So you go through a constant matching process. You test how well you work together as a founding partnership. And that's basically by output, like by production. Like you have a gut idea. How much can you achieve in a week? Was it amazing? If it wasn't, then you break up and you find someone else. And in many ways, it's a very... I wouldn't say brutal, that's not fair, but it's a very roller coaster process and it can be a bit stressful and overwhelming. So I was working with one team, I actually worked, ended up working with four people before I met Chris. But when I met Chris, he was working on a new type of AI that I had never seen before. So there's a company out in California, as they all are, called Adept AI. And at the time, they were putting together something that it, they're calling Action Transformers, we call Action AI. But what fundamentally is, it's a new way to interact with computers. And that's basically what we're trying to build. So let me explain. So every single day, you use your computer using your keyboard and your mouse. Uh, you tell it what to do by moving the, you don't really think about this, but you move to your mouse to X, Y coordinates, you type X, you know, some keystrokes, and then you do something else. And that performs software tasks, send emails, prepare spreadsheets, you know, get ready for the Medics Money podcast, yada, yada, yada. But what if you could just put your keyboard and mouse away and an AI that could use your mouse and keyboard in exactly the same way and see your screen and use it intelligently took over a lot of the administrative banal tasks themselves and combined that with some of the clinical language models to actually do those tasks. You know, I could tell my natural language agent within a software space, like a robot, really, that's virtually or even better to think of it as imagine if you had someone just sitting at your computer all day for you without sleep. It could do everything that you can do. And I'd say, you know, send an email to Tommy summarizing what Tortoise has done over the last three months referencing you know my career today chris's career today and all of our correspondence on email and then the agent would go to our email it would look ourselves on the website combine that send it to tommy an email and i was like wow if you could do this so clinical informatics is something that i've been working on for like 12 years i just well i say working on i mean just banging my head on the wall right like most people i wrote an email to cerner about five years ago and i just said look the system is cool i get it but it's slowing us down. It takes twice as long to do anything. It's really clunky. Like, what are all these buttons even for? I saw a way that we could combine this technology where we could build an intelligent computer interface, but for clinicians. 
And on the one end, it's front-end automation. So it's AI that can look at the screen and understand it intelligently. In theory, it can use any electronic healthcare record system, and we're testing that now with three or four. And on the other side, it's connecting to all these useful AI models. So in the basic sense, the MVP that we're building now is it takes away all your paperwork. So when we first tested this, I mean, the first thing, my first reaction when I saw this, actually, if I'll be completely honest with you, was like, I just don't believe you. I just said, I just don't believe this is possible. So what we ended up doing in that first week together, which is, again, is why we ended up working together, because it was very productive. I went away and built a fake electronic healthcare record system. And I just made it on this thing called Bubble, which is like a no-code platform. And it was great. It's only got five buttons. It just does consultation, bloods, images, orders, and that's it. And what we did is we trained the AI model to use that as our first sort of EHR that we could access. And then we ran a fake clinic within the cohort. And we got fake patients to come in. And I could see them, you know, completely from pre-chart, summarizing their notes, to doing the consultation, to writing the onward letter, to ordering the tests, without touching the computer once. And it was really a strange experience because suddenly, well, for example, the idea was that I wouldn't use the keyboard. So when we set the room up to have this consultation, we were like, okay, well, where do we put the chairs? Because you don't need to face the computer. There's no keyboard, you don't need to type. So we ended up putting them in the middle of the room facing each other, which was really weird. Like, they didn't, I don't know if still that's the right thing to do, but like the eye contact, you know, the rapport, I'm just listening, I'm completely concentrating. I'm not worrying about X inbox task or why have I written this down or did I type that? Will I forget it? Is it going to be in the letter? And also like time. I could see patients 60% faster in that particular setting with actually more face-to-face contact, more patient engagement. And it kind of felt like this is one of my things, right? Like everybody is taught how to do medicine in more or less exactly the same way at medical school. And then you're sort of just thrown into the world and then you pick up all these bad habits, which essentially are just constraints of the environments that you've been in. That's mostly resource derived. It's got nothing to do with how clinically medicine should be practiced. So it felt like being in medical school again, you know, take a history, talk to the patient, make a diagnosis. The best six months of my life as a doctor was I just became a locum, full-time locum in between CMT and before I was a trainee cardiology reg, just about six years ago. And for whatever reason, the hospital IT system was so awful that it didn't give me an, it didn't give me a login. So when I went to go see patients on the ward, I just, the F1 came with me. They did all of the typing and the scribing and the paperwork, had some really amazing juniors there actually. Shout out to them if they're listening. And I saw 35 patients a day. Like I've never been more productive as a doctor in my whole life. I was like an absolute machine and I loved it. It was pure medicine. Like just examine, make a diagnosis, talk to the patient, talk to their family, do something else. And I thought, wow, if we could recreate that. So that's basically what we've been doing ever since. So we taught it then to use an open source EMR called OpenEMR. And it's actually one of the world's most used electronic healthcare record. So the AI basically operates it for you where you see a patient in an outpatient setting. And that's where we're focusing our our MVP. And I actually took that prototype to just like two days ago to the Imperial MedTech Society. So it's one of those classic things of like I'd agreed to do a workshop for them. Obviously in a startup, you know, clock speed is like a hundred times. So I didn't even think about what I was going to talk about in the workshop until like lunchtime. And then suddenly I was like, okay, I'm heading to this workshop in the afternoon on a Sunday. It's an hour and a half of my life and startup 
time is extremely precious. So what? how can I optimize this? So what we ended up doing was like splitting up the room into two groups. We had all the clinicians in the room. So the most senior was like SD2 GP. Most junior was a first year medical student. I gave one group just the open EMR system, never seen it before, and a fake patient. And we're like, somewhere in the system, there's a couple of documents. I want you to summarize them, see the patient, find out about their problem and write a letter. And I gave the exact same task to another group, but they had our AI tool and they just gave it a bunch of commands and it would do it for them. And the results were amazing, like 12 and a half minutes. And even some people just gave up, right? Trying to do it without any AI support. Three and a half minutes was the best consultation, but that was three and a half minutes of pure patient time, right? Pure face-to-face discussion, just history taking examination, nothing else. And the AI did everything for it. But we also did, uh, there's this thing that measures cognitive load. It's called the NASA task index load and they got them to do that as well this just talks about like how difficult was the task how frustrating how physically demanding how mentally demanding and it reduced all those negative impacts by like 75 percent which is actually how you feel when you use it you feel free right as a doctor you feel free and it's just imagining what how would so many of our colleagues feel if they could just do the thing that they thought they were going to do for the rest of their lives as opposed to the typing and the admin and the letters and the ordering the tests and the follow-ups of the tests and the angry SI incidents when you've missed the CT scan from six months ago, which actually you never even ordered, but somehow has your name on it. Like all of the bits that really push people out of the bit that they actually love, which is looking after people. So that's kind of what we're, you know, what we're trying to unlock. And, you know, so far so good. And so that sounds amazing because I think you're right. As a doctor, I spend so much I should just be using my skills consulting with patients, but the admin burden is insane. The IT infrastructure, certainly inside the NHS, could be a lot better. There's probably people on the way to work right now who are going to have to like reboot their ward computer many times, get the toner out of the printer and like shake it till the last little bit comes out because no one's replaced the toner because like printers, you just, you install them and you never need to service them, right? And so I think it sounds like really appealing to me and a great idea. I guess it's just, it's a, such a massive task, isn't it? And one thing with AI, I don't know, you probably haven't seen it, but on our YouTube channel, we pitted Ed, an accountant, against ChatGPT. And we just asked some really basic questions that it really should have known the answer to. And it gave amazing authoritative answers. And I was like, this is pretty good. And Ed was like, that's completely wrong. I was yeah, like, yeah, what? Yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. it delivered the information in such an authoritative, natural way that I was like, oh man, ChatGPT smashed it. And Ed was like, what? Well, the numbers are completely wrong. I was like, what are we talking about? And he was just on some rubbish spreadsheet. He was like, no, they're definitely wrong. So how can we guard against that? Yeah, that's a fascinating problem. So just to explain why that happened. So what we're talking about is generative AI. And it really is generating things that look like what the answer should be. That's how the model actually works. It's trying to predict what the what the image, what the data space, what the words should look like. So it optimizes for that. It optimizes for exactly what you just said. This is the structure it should look like. These are the words. This looks like the right thing. But if you use it sort of untamed, let's say, it's very much, you know, you can't, you know, you can't use it in any regulated space. Not very useful. The best, like, analogous way to think about how these chat GPT models work is if you look at some of the outputs from the image generative AI. And you've got things that look like things, but actually look closely like the hands are actually, you know, they're actually melded together when you've asked it to generate a face or like actually the eye looks like an eye. But when you look closely, it's like got no sclerosis. Do you know what I mean? Like the detail is not there. 
because essentially it's trying to match up to things that are not true, but it's just a reflection. And that is the truest sense of the word. It's just a reflection. It can't do new knowledge. The other interesting thing is the way that these models are constructed, like there's almost no calculations in them. So ChatGPT is terrible at numbers. Do not ask it to do calculations. It will get them wrong. Like it can't even do very basic counting sometimes, unless it's like a logical rule. But there are other models now that are coming where basically either people are fine tuning or more interestingly, they're using chat GPT or other large language models of which there are quite a few now from structured text or, you know, previously and say, look, this is your true world. You can only pull from this when you say you don't know. So there's a new science to a lot of this, which is called prompt engineering. So the bit that basically you give the AI model to start your task is actually extremely important. And that's something that, you know, is only coming as people start to use these things. And if you look at some of the really good big companies doing some really useful stuff in there. A lot of the secret source of how they use these models is prompt engineering. But for us, like I think in medicine, you actually don't need to, you don't really need to use the generative function of these AI models. Why would you want to make stuff up? Like you, you actually don't, you know, and there's a lot of settings that you can do to reduce the spontaneity. And that's again, to do with prompt engineering. But more interestingly is just using it to, tidy up and pass and put the structured data into something which is a useful output that you know saves you know writing a letter right nobody in our profession has ever written a letter you know that's going to be published alongside keats you know it's going to be it's not going to be in some anthology of the great works of man and actually the ones people i do know actually people that write really flowery letters and everyone goes why that's not the point it's a communication of the basic facts in some sort of readable format that's it so it's very algorithmic. I used to write this. I mean, many people use templates anyway. So these ways of taking, you know, structured outputs from actual, you know, just automating the work, right? And I think that's extremely useful. I think large language models themselves have an innate intelligence, which we haven't really begun to explore in lots of other applications. And in medicine, they also probably, if you if you can, you know, build models that are based, you know, there's a few biomedical models now. And I think that will be a real thing that people start to learn is like, don't use, you know, untrained, unrefined large language models to do medical tasks. But actually, as a knowledge base, they do function really, really well. And specifically for medicine, like, fundamentally, medicine is a language. I mean, that actually is what it is. It's not actually a science. You know, you talk to your patient, you make a story. Diagnostics is another story. You know, look at even the, you know, look at a paper, look at a scientific paper. Look at the end. It says conclusion, right? It doesn't just finish with the results. It gives you a conclusion. It gives you a story. What does this change about the story that you already know, you know, in terms of the best treatment for heart failure or the best treatment for asthma? And actually, you know, that's where I think the, you know, the inflection point for large language models at least was passed last year when we can start teaching these stories to AI in a really useful way. And I think the other thing is like people have been trying to use it to make doctors better doctors. And I actually don't think that's the right approach. There's a really good book called Noise by Daniel Kahneman. And it talks about when we make errors, there's essentially two functions. One is your bias, which means how far off the right answer are you repeatedly? A really good example of that is when women, for example, present with an ACS, acute coronary syndrome to A&E, they're often underdiagnosed. And that's because of the innate bias of the receiving physician to say, actually, troponins should be higher, your chest pain should be more severe. And, you know, they're acutely wrong. And that's reflected in the data. 
But what's an equally important component, and it's, you know, in the book, it's shown to be very elegantly equal, is noise. How consistent are you as a doctor, right? If you can just reduce the one or two massive mistakes that you might make, even like over a whole career, you have as much impact in reducing error as you do the bias. And that's where I think AI has the much bigger role to play. It's catching the, oh, wait, hold on. Why, you know, why didn't you order the CT scan? They should have a follow-up. You know, the very basics of, what you know a good standard of care looks like and that's you know we've all seen terrible examples of terrible care and often it's there's one or two usually two compounding very very big errors and i think that's actually where you know the ai has a much much bigger role to play at least in decision support yeah i love it i mean as an uninformed observer i see sort of two paths that these companies like yours take they're either looking to replace doctors completely with ai i get why that's commercially appealing completely not going to happen in my uneducated opinion Agreed. and then there's yeah, others agree. who are trying to augment the role of the doctor okay to make us better and that is much lower hanging fruit because we all know that there's tons of tiny things that we could do to our workplace environment to our decision making tools to just how we order tests and scans to be honest with you that is low-hanging fruit but if you can pick that low-hanging fruit i think it's going to be really amazing so i mean this looks great especially with my typo prone fingers if someone could just dictate <laughs> instead then i wouldn't have so many typos yeah, in my yeah, notes 100 i think the augmentation thing is something i really firmly believe like a patients don't want it i mean fundamentally they don't want it it's such a vulnerable part it's such a core part of who you are your health as a human don't want that to be outsourced to a machine I and mean, you want the human contact and you want the human contact but b it's just super wasteful like you know in the uk alone we have 1.5 million algorithms walking around in people's brains about how to look after people why would you start from scratch and try to put that in the bin when as you say you could actually supercharge those people to have better lives to be better physicians better clinicians with a whole bunch of ai tools that is the truly the best of both worlds really AI human co-working and I think that's much more realistic in terms of the future integrating the huge amounts of data into things that make useful insights wearables being a ridiculously large amount of data that we're doing next to nothing with as a really good example of that but even just the information that people carry around every day you know years of very complex notes years of information that actually you just don't have the time anymore information overload to sift through but actually, they, if you could, if it was presented to you like a vignette, like at medical school, then you would just make a great decision and you know, deliver great care. So, yeah. Yeah, it feels like we're at an inflection point, you know, where the technology is just showing its potential and we're yet to harness it, especially like you said around wearables and stuff like that. It's going to be massive at some point. Okay. That was super useful. I've got to go and wireframe a new website and rebuild our search algorithm, <laughs> something I've never done before as a doctor, but it's actually just like building a protocol for treatment of a patient, but a lot easier and with lower consequences. Where can we find out about Tortoise? Yeah, I mean, our website's Tortoise, so T-O-R-T-U-S, spelt wrong, obviously, for the search engine optimization, .ai. And we have a waitlist, so if you're a clinician and you want to try it, we actually do have a mini tool that some people can play with, and I mean, you know, we have an open invite at the moment to come and test it out. Unfortunately, it's only based in London. So well, if you can come to Hoxton, that's where our office is, at least for a couple of months. So you can come and test it and <clears throat> participate in some of the studies. We're collecting a whole bunch of data on workflow, time efficiency. Interestingly, also maybe voice biomarkers. And that's another interesting area of research. Like, can you tell from a doctor's voice if they're 
good to practice if they're tired if they're hungry so yeah so get in touch any way that you want and come and participate because i think you know it's super exciting and linkedin is now better than your twitter i haven't seen you on twitter for a while you've moved to linkedin (laughs) i'll tell you this for free i left twitter and it was probably actually the best decision i've ever made just for the brain space if you spend a lot of time on Twitter, you are, unless like you have some decent controls and I've never been somebody who could do moderation ever in any aspect, you're wasting your brain. Honestly, you're wasting your attention space. You're wasting your cognitive powers. You're wasting your emotional resource. And when I came off it, I was like, oh, actually, I, I remember you. I remember brain. I remember how to think and learn and do things and have attention for more than 25 minutes. So for the brain space, it's great. And actually for LinkedIn, I actually do rate it as a social platform more for just the nature of how people interact. And, you know, it's much more professional and a bit less aggressive. And, and... <laughs> It's like the polar opposite of Twitter. Like on Twitter, people like attack you. And then on LinkedIn, it's like almost a bit sycophantic. And you're like, is this real? Like, are you really that enthusiastic about the fact that I just got yeah. up and had breakfast? Yeah, I mean, I f- feel I should balance that by saying bad things about all social media. So like Facebook makes you f- feel bad about, you know, what you're doing with your life twitter makes you feel bad about your politics instagram makes you feel bad about your body and linkedin makes you feel bad about everything <laughs> like it's like everything like people post everything and everything's amazing in every aspect and you're like yeah you just take it all with a pinch of salt but no one ever has a bad day on linkedin it's like got up completely destroyed my website code had a meeting with a key supplier they left and then got home and the kids had trashed the house it's like that never happens on linkedin yeah, yeah okay yeah, cool yeah. you mentioned i mean i just wanted to say for, for if you're looking to get into the basics of ai i don't know if you've seen this i'm not on commission but i should be hello world by hannah fry i love it it's just like a really simple I haven't read it, but I love Hannah Fry, so I massively respect that as a plug. I'm going to go buy that right now. It's really low level. I should really put an affiliate link up, but I don't have time. So, But Hannah Fry, hello world. You mentioned about social media destroying your brain. I also agree with that. Cal Newport, deep work. I think all doctors should read that because what you'll realize is that in our day-to-day lives as doctors, you know, to focus on deep work, big tasks, you need to focus. And there's so Mm. many things that are making us as doctors not focus. That actually changed my, not only medics money practice, I have a thinking Tuesday where I have no distractions. and I just try to come up with new things and think about in peace, basically. But it changed my medical work as well because there's so many interruptions and distractions. So Cal Mm. Newport, deep Mm. work. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Dom. I don't know what, like, let's catch up in a another 18 months like 18 months ago we were doing like healthcare works foundation ppe now you're doing ai i have no idea what you're going to be doing 18 months but i'll be, gonna here. be on the moon i think that's my plan i think elon's beat you to that possibly oh, but uh... get there figure it out <laughs> <laughs> great take care dom so good to see you lovely thanks thanks so much cheers for you, Tommy. cheers bye